evening. Um, glad you all made it through the elevator experience here at the Jew Center. Um, for those of you who haven't had the honor of meeting or you're here at MG for the first time, uh, my name is Mark Wiles, Robert Wiles, and you're in the Manhattan Jewish Experience. We've been having Yom HaShoah programs literally since we began 24 years ago. And I want to thank all of you for coming and showing such honor uh, to the memory of the six million. And I want to especially welcome our guest this evening, who I have the privilege of interviewing in just a few minutes, Mr. Manny Corman, who, by the way, is the great uncle of MGE fellow, Shana Corman. Um, actually, when we um, first reached out to you, to your brother, we didn't even know about the relationship. We had no idea that the Cormans, you know, a lot of Jewish Cormans. So uh, there are no coincidences in life. You should, have, you should have a lot of nachas from your... But these are special Cormans. Special Cormans. Okay, well, we're going to hear about that in a moment. I also want to recognize the presence uh, this evening of Knesset member Ophir Sofer, uh, who serves as Israel's Minister of Aliyah and Absorption. It's a great, great honor for us that you've joined us this evening. I also want to welcome uh, the members of Nefesh B'Nefesh, which is an amazing organization that facil facilitates Aliyah. Um, and we'll hear later on from um, Minister um, Sofer, who will close out our program tonight. I want to thank Rabbi Ezra Cohn and uh, Andrew Hershkowitz. He's clapping for himself in the back. <laughs> Andrew Hershkowitz and Leah Hashimi, for all of their hard work tonight, the program, um, the program this evening is sponsored in memory of Harry and Terry Panuski of Blessed Memory, uh, the grandparents of our dear friend Amanda Dreyer Kalansky, uh, a beloved part of the MGE community. Uh, I want to give special thanks to Alan and Alicia Pines who made this event possible, all in memory of Amanda's grandparents, Harry and Terry Panuski. Uh, of blessed memory, both of whom were Holocaust survivors. The uh, Torah in last week's reading records a very difficult incident in the personal life of Aaron, Moses' brother, who was the high priest. And without getting into all the details, tragically, two of Aaron's sons were stricken, struck down when they were bringing what the Torah refers to as an Eish Zarah, as a strange fire, and sort of an unauthorized form of worship. And without getting into all the, the specifics, what did they do that was so wrong? Did the punishment fit the crime? What we can learn, one of the things we can learn from this episode was Aaron's reaction. What does the Torah tell us about Aaron, Aharon HaKohen, when he learned of the news of the death of his own sons? The Torah says, Vayidom Aharon, Aaron was silent. And this kind of silence is applauded, praised by our rabbis. Rashi, quoting the Midrash, says that Aaron was rewarded for his silent acceptance of God's decree. And when, God forbid, something awful happens, and we're able to somehow accept it, and live with it, and make our peace with it somehow, it's considered a great, courageous act of faith. And in this sense, silence is indeed a virtue. But there are moments when silence is not a virtue as a response. 
where it could even be seen as criminal. And I think the greatest example of this, of course, is the Holocaust, which is being commemorated throughout the world tonight and tomorrow. The world may perhaps never forget the six million, and that's why we have this event. But we also must never forget the hundreds of millions of people who stood in silence, the dozens of governments and elected officials, Western European, America, that would not sacrifice military, political, even economic support to save innocent Jewish lives. The quota system in this country, which allowed only a handful of Jews into the United States, which turned back two boats filled with Jewish refugees back to Europe where they ultimately perished. And that is something to think about tonight too. And we must remember that so that when we witness the next, God forbid, atrocity, that we will learn from history and not remain silent. Now, as most of you know, MGE caters to the 20s, 30s cohort. So obviously we don't have survivors among us. So by definition, we need to turn to our elders. We have to learn about it from others. And if we don't, with the simple passage of time, the historical memory just begins to fade. It's incredible, as, even as we have survivors alive, we have the Shoah being denied. And you can always read books and visit museums, but there's nothing like meeting somebody and hearing a personal story from someone themselves who was there and somehow miraculously survived. And tonight we are privileged to hear from one such person, our special guest, Mr. Manny Corman. And I just want to, in advance, thank you, Manny, for coming. This is his fourth speaking engagement today. Uh, Mr. Corman was born on December 21st, 1931, in Hamburg, Germany. And shortly before his seventh birthday, he and his family were taken from their home by the Nazis and expelled into Poland, where he and his older brother, Gerd, were eventually separated from their parents. And after an incredible series of events, which we're going to speak about in just a moment, uh, Manny, can't I call you Manny? Manny's fine. He's fine. Okay. I can't do it. Mr. Corman and his brother found his way to England right as the Second World War was breaking out in 1939. They eventually they survived and eventually made it to the United States. Um, Mr. Corman attended Queens College, got married, raised a family, and started an illustrious career in education, uh, including becoming the principal of Adrian Block Junior High School in Flushing, New York. Mr. Corman currently mentors principals around the city in developing their own careers, and it's truly, truly an honor to have Mr. Manny Corman. Please welcome him warmly to our community. Thank you. I'm a substitute for my brother, who, who decided that he couldn't make it tonight, actually for medical reasons, but he's fine. Um, so you missed a real treat by not having my brother here today. We'll see. <laughs> Thank you for being here and adding us to your, 
There are many visits today. Uh, let's start from the beginning. Uh, tell us about your life before the war. Where, where did you grow up? What was your family like? So our life began, my life began in Hamburg, Germany. Um, my parents, my father was Polish. He came to Germany, uh, I forget what year, um, certainly after World War uh, I. And um, he met my mother, who was born in Elberfeld, Germany, met my mother at a railroad station, and uh, they decided it was okay, and uh, they were married in, in, in Elberfeld, Germany, at, the, at my mother's parents' house. Um, and um, my father was a shoe salesman, um, and my mother was a housekeeper, a home, a home person with her children. Um, and uh, we lived a very normal life. Um, there was something that occurred in 1933 that made our life, our family's life, somewhat different, and that my mother's oldest brother was assassinated in front of his parents' house uh, because he was uh, fighting with in an organization fighting the Nazi regime, and uh, they put him in jail and then let him go and. In front of his parents' house, two guys followed him and shot him. So that was March 7th, 1933. And so that was really an eye-opener, not for me. I was all of two years old, um, but certainly for my mother and my father and uh, the rest of the family in terms of what could happen. So that was a normal life. We went to a Jewish day school called Talmud Torah Shulam, which was... Um, attached to Bornplatz Synagogue, which, and the chief rabbi of uh, uh, Hamburg was the rabbi, was Joseph Kalabach, the uncle of Shlomo, by the way. Uh, and uh, the Kalabachs were all over the place in terms of uh, rabbinical involvement. In, there were big part. rabbis in Germany, the Kalabachs. Oh, yeah. I, th I, I think the family originated from Frankfurt, Germany. And um, Joseph Kalabach, I mean, in Germany, top hat on a Saturday morning as you saw him walking on the street. Um, so, and we were, Bornplatz was a very big synagogue. It was not a small enterprise. Um, and at Kristallnacht, it was burnt, so destroyed. And before Kristallnacht, did you, when did you start feeling, obviously you were very young, when did you start feeling anti-Semitism in the air? You know, I as a, youngster of six years old. Um, I don't really remember the open feeling of uh, anti-Semitism. Um, I, I do remember, not vividly, but Hitler once came to uh, speak at a soccer field, which was right across the street from where we lived. Um, and um, everybody was excited about that. And uh, we were told to stay away. My brother and I tried to sneak in. We did. We snuck back out. But, uh, but I was a kid, you know, so I, I didn't quite feel the anti-Semitism that we talked about. Um, but that was before we were deported. Right. So, um, so that was in 1938. You were deported? We were deported October 28, 1938. Uh, we were... There was a knock on the door at seven o'clock in the morning. 
my father answered the doorbell. There was a local policeman who was always out on the street, and he said, you have 20 minutes or a half hour to get your stuff. Each of you can have a little suitcase, and just follow me to the local police station. And we went to the local police station with him, and there we saw other families, and uh, we were put on trucks, and uh, it went. the trucks took us to the uh, Hamburg jail, and they jailed us, uh, the mothers and children in one place, fathers in another place. And before we get to the jail, did, did you have a, did your family, your parents, did they have any kind of warning? Were other Jewish families being Absolutely taken? Absolutely. Not that I know that we had, anybody had any warning. If we had warning, we wouldn't have been there at seven o'clock in the morning, I'm sure. Um, but there was no, no warning at all. Um, I, from what my knowledge says is that, uh, the Polish government sometime prior to October 28, 38, had indicated to its uh, uh, its citizens living outside of Poland that if they didn't, re if they didn't return by a certain date, uh, they would lose their citizenship. So uh, my interpretation says today, the Hitler regime said, well, we can get rid of some Jews in the meantime. They, they should be sent back. So they picked up all the Polish Jews. 15,000 families were, 15,000 Jews were involved in that deportation. Now that was 99% of the world that had no clue as to this deportation. I mean, Kristallnacht was really the, the big thing that sh showed up, it showed its face and everybody became upset about that. But the 15,000 Jews who were sent to Poland deported on October 28th, that was a, if you look at the, the books, it doesn't say very much about us. Right, so then you um, you got to prison. How, how long were you? Went to prison, was there for the day. Remember October 28, 38, I, in fact, instead of remember, let me tell you, it was a Friday. So my interpretation of that is the German government also understood its error Shabbos and uh, let, let's drive them a little more crazy. And uh, they did a good job of that. So um, it was October 28th and they took us separated us, as I told you, and then we were, uh, we met back at the railroad station. They put us back on trucks, pair, uh, mothers and children, and my father separately, and then we met at the platform of the railroad. And and uh, take us through that, the, so, the train. Uh... So we, so there was a train waiting for us, um, and the, uh, the windows of the train were open about three inches or four inches, but sealed the rest of the way. You couldn't move them up or down. Um, we met our father on the platform, and then we uh, we had to find our own seats, which we did. Um, along the way, we we and met. We is this is you and your my mother, my father, my brother, and I. Okay. Uh, everybody had, was on their own as a family looking for seats, and we found our own seats. And uh, along the way, we met somebody, a distant relative, uh, who had a kiddish cup in his hand. He was making kiddish for for Shabbat on the train leaving. Uh, Hamburg, Germany. Um, that's a thought process that doesn't leave you so easily. Um, and um, so the train left um, Hamburg and headed east, made stops along the way. Um, somewhere along the way, when at one of the stops, my mother, for some reason, had a postcard or a letter that she was able to write to her parents because they lived in Elberfeld, Germany, which is... Uh, in the area of um, Munich and uh, north of that. 
and um, and so uh, she handed she wrote a letter and she found the guy on the on a platform and asked him to mail it. She was able to put a hand through that little opening, and uh, he took it. And as a train pulls out, he ripped it into small pieces and threw it away. Uh, so that kind of gives you the idea of what the feeling of the times were uh, among the uh, German population vis-a-vis -vis the Jewish world. And then the, the train was to Poland. The train kept going, ended up the next morning uh, at the last town of Germany, which was Neubenschen. And Neubenschen on the German side, uh, Spongin on the Polish side. Um, we had to disembark from the train. Um, my brother reminded me not too long ago that um, the heads of household, the fathers, were taken. They they got off the train, and the and the German military marched them away from the rest of the crowd. And my brother said, for him, that was a very important time to tell him that my father was no longer in control and that somebody else was in control of our lives. Now, our age difference is three and a half years, so that's quite significant. And so his observations are, were much more dramatic than mine. Yeah. Yeah. And, and how long were, then, were you in Poland for then? Well, we, we, uh, first we had to get across the border. Uh, we were marched to the border. Um, the, the Germans were in back of us with weapons and the Poles were on the other side and they had some rifles they, were, they had in their hands. Um, my father told us to stay back, which we did. And then somebody suddenly ran across to the other side and everybody just followed. No shots that I remembered were fired and uh, we were on the Polish side. And um, the Poles had, knew, had a whole crowd of people here. There were 15,000 people. Uh, who said hello from Germany. And uh, so the first place they emptied out were horse stables and they put straw on the floor and they put humans in. So we, we spent some time in, in that setting. And um, then they moved us from the horse stables to- uh, And who, who's guarding you this whole time? Pardon? Who is guarding you this whole time? Who's guarding? I have, I have no memory of being guarded, but I'm sure we were. Right. Uh, the Polish government it was Poles? It was, you don't, it was... No, we were past the Germans already. We were on the other side. We were on the Polish side when we were in horse stables. And um, they then moved us from horse stables to a building called the Mühle, where they set up cots and uh, mattresses and so on. A little better living uh, than in the horse stables. Um, after a while, uh, my father, who was considered Polish, he was Polish right. for the Poles, uh, it's, it's interesting, in Germany we were all Polish because my father was Polish. Once my mother married my father, she was considered Polish, right? <laughs> and, uh, but in Poland, my father was Polish, so not the rest of us. Uh, but my father had the, um, he was able to leave that setting and he re rented a room in a Scharkitz house in, in Spongy. And um, he was able to move around and uh, after a while, the Polish government permitted all of us to become a family unit, and my father rented a room in, on a farm in a little town next to Spongin called Nonya. And uh, so we lived in one big room um, in Poland. 
Um, and that was around December, January time. Um, so we lived some kind of life. So this is like over two months, two to three months now. Yeah, sure. And then in um, April of 1939, um, the German government uh, indicated that all heads of household could return to Germany to take care of their possessions, which were left when they were picked up. Because all we did, the cops came, took us, my, my parents locked the door, and goodbye. There was an apartment, there was a car in the garage, there were bank accounts, and so on and so forth. So my father and other heads of household were given permission to go back because the German government wanted to get rid of all those unknowns that existed there. And this one owned that apartment, that was locked, you know. So they wanted that cleared up. And so my father went back to Germany, did exactly what he was supposed to do. And while there, he received um, a permission, a, a certificate of permission, I think, I don't know the exact title of it, um, to go to Cuba. And um, so the discussion then became between my parents, does he go or does he return to Poland? Well, my parents decided that if there's an opportunity to go to Cuba, go to Cuba, then go to the States, United States, and then um, bring the family. Right. That was the thought process. And so my father went ahead and he made arrangements. My, my parents knew a family that were involved in the shipping industry that were not Jewish. Uh, and my father was able to acquire a ticket um, to travel to Cuba. And so in May of 1939, my father got on a ship by the name of the St. Louis. Oh. And the history of the St. Louis is, is a well-known subject in today's world. Um, so the ship left the Hamburg port in May of 1939. Um, it was a regular nice trip across to Cuba. When they got to Cuba, they wouldn't let the ship in, as most of you know. They wouldn't let the ship in, and then um, they were um, the Cuban government insisted that they leave the harbor area, and the captain of the ship realized that he couldn't take the people back to the European continent. Um, actually, couldn't take them back to Germany. That that would have not worked out well. Uh, there were eight hundred plus passengers on board. This is all, all Jewish on the St. Louis. Primarily, I can't guarantee right. that, but I would tell you mostly Jewish. Mostly. Uh, there mostly was some from, from Germany. There were some who got were able to get off the ship because they were they had the, the they were from visiting Hamburg and went to Cuba, right? So they were able to get off. There were some people able to get off. The rest of the crowd was not, and um, so the ship had to leave the the Havana Harbor, and they moved to a place right nearby called Miami Beach. And so, uh, what is it, 60 miles away approximately? Yeah. Uh, so they went into the Miami Beach area, and uh, that was during the time of FDR, and Cordell Hall was his uh, Secretary, Secretary of State. State yeah. And um, so they were in uh, American waters. They were told by the uh, American government that they had to leave American waters. And they had to go to international waters, which the captain did. 
And he finally was able to get four countries to accept the passengers of the St. Louis, Belgium, France, Holland, and England. And the ship landed in Holland, in Belgium. Uh, that was the landing place uh, in June of 1939. What, what did your father think when he found out that the United States wouldn't accept the refugees on, on the St. Louis? Did you ever speak about that? He wrote about it. Um, my brother edited a book many years ago called The Hunter and the Hunted, uh, which is a compilation of uh, reports from different people who s survived different things. And um, he wrote about being on the ship, not being able to come in. And uh, I'm not sure if it was his opening line or some, some line in the document which talks about not being treated the way people should be treated. Um, and so he ended up, when the ship went back, he ended up in Holland. I don't know how that system was devised of who goes where, um, but he ended up in Holland. And uh, so that was June of uh, 1939. So you're without your father for many months now. Oh, we were without my father from, uh, he left us in April, and we're now talking about June and he's in Holland. Um, that separation lasted a long, long time. Right. Um, so my father's now in, in, in Holland. Was there a correspondence? Were you able to? There was to correspondence. Them? There was correspondence. Remember in 39, all the countries were independent. They were not invaded right. yet. Um, Poland was invaded. Right, so the, the mail was still going. The mail was still going. Sure. Sure. And um, so that's what happened with my father. He ended up in Holland. My mother, my brother, and I are still in Poland. When my father left, we were still in Poland. My mother knew she has to find some way of getting her children out of Poland. And um, so she found out about what is now known as Kindertransport. Wow. When the British government, the parliament decided in uh, 1938, November of 38, mm -hmm. that they would accept 10,000 kids from the European continent. Um, no parents, only children, somewhere from the age of four to the age of 17, that's approximately the age difference, the age level. And um, they, uh, that's what they would accept. And my brother and I were accepted for that program. It was not called Kindertransport at that time. Was right. Was that difficult knowing you'd be separated from your parents? Or that was just... That's... That's, that's difficult in normal times. Yeah. <laughs> not abnormal times. Um, I was not easy. Um, when we were supposed to leave, I didn't want to go. Um, I guess you would call me a mama's boy at those times. Right? How old were you? I was seven. Okay, you could be a mama's boy. I could be a mama's boy. Right? Uh, yeah. And so um, I climbed a tree. I said, I'm not coming down. Um, my mother, amazing, uh, she, prom she had a promise me that she would have a white suit made for my brother and me so we would look good when we went on the on the. I came down, right? Um, so did it upset me? Of course. And, and, Gerd, and Gerd, how was Gerd? Was he support to you? Oh, he's, he was always my support. Yeah. Without my brother, I would not have made it. Um, I mean, that's 
that's for sure. Um, and um, so we went on this kidna transport. Now, the whole thought of the parent walking their children, their child, their children, to a train and saying goodbye to them, and not knowing if they'll ever see them again. I mean, that's really what the parents were doing when they were putting their children into those kinds of situations. And um, did you have any sense like that? I mean, it would take a, a tremendous sense of maturity psychologically to understand how how heroic that was of your parents that they loved you more than than having you. I can tell you, I think about that today, and I must and I've thought about it as an adult. I'm not so sure that I thought about that when I was seven. However, if my brother was sitting here answering that question, his answer would be different, I'm sure. Wow. So you got on the uh, So we got on the train. train. We ended up in Warsaw. That's, that's where the kids were collected. And from Warsaw, they took us um, to a place in, in a little town called Otwatz, which is known at that time, at least, a vacation place for people of Warsaw. Um, and uh, so we were supposed to leave somewhere in July on a kindertransport. Um, July came and July went. And it wasn't until August 24 or 25, somewhere around that time. Remember that September 1, Hitler declared war on Poland and invaded. Um, so in that time period in, in uh, Poland at 24, uh, the director of the place, in ch the guy in charge of the, of the uh, 60 kids uh, indicated that they were ready to uh, uh, send us on the Kindertransport. Um, and one of the requirements, if I'm correct, and I think I am, was that prior to the children being able to go on a kindertransport, there had to be families in England to accept them. who were willing to accept them. And in our case, it had to be Jewish families. Um, and so that's what happened. Um, they did find families. And so when the list was called, I was at the head of the list. Who, who arranged for these families? The, the organizations. I'm, I'm sure that a place like Bloomsbury House, which is similar to Hayas in the United States, um, and other Jewish organizations mm -hmm. were involved in this. I think that was part of the agreement of the, uh, of the Parliament Agreement mm -hmm. of 1939, 38. Um, and so uh, we ended up um, leaving Poland and uh, going back to Warsaw. They put us on trains. Um, we, we had an interesting experience along the way, and that is we met, we, we kind of knew this guy, Joseph Camille, uh, who attached himself to us later on, but Joseph Camille's mother was a, what we used to call in Germany, Schwarzform. Can you uh, all hear over there? Yeah, maybe just hold it a little closer. Sure. Um, Joseph came from a family where the family was ultra-orthodox. Ultra and when Joseph, when the mother took Joseph to the train, even in Sponji, 
she was hesitant about putting him on the train because she was so concerned about him not being brought up as an ultra ultra orthodox Jewish kid that um, she took him off the train, put him on the train, took him off the train, put him on the train. She finally let him go. Um, and uh, but she showed up at the Warsaw Railroad Station to do the same thing, oh but gosh. she finally let him go. But Joseph attached himself to us from the Warsaw Station and further on. So he you became. Just, you met him at the Warsaw Station. We we knew him from Spongine, uh, but only casually. And he was like around your age. Exactly my age. Uh -huh. Exactly my age. And he was all alone. Um, his mother and his sisters were older, and so he was the only kid going from that family. And um, so he att attached himself to us, especially kid my age, right, yeah. his age, and the older brother who took care of him, me, so why not him? And um, so he attached himself to us, and um, so we went from uh, Warsaw and went through uh, the city of Danzig on the, with the train. That was the only thing that was Polish, was the station. Everything else was German in those years. Um, and then the, um, the, uh, we headed for Gdynia, which is the port city of um, Poland. And we boarded the ship called the Warszawa um, and uh, headed for England. Um, and we arrived in England. And then we were greeted uh, we were brought to a hall, and we were greeted by the people who said they would accept us into the uh, um, into the kinder transport program, and so they would accept us in London. And so uh, we got there, and my brother and I were assigned to the family, and Joseph was assigned to another family. Joseph cried, and I cried. He ended up going with us to, to that, your family to the family. Oh. Um, uh, I mean, things. Yeah. You know, what was the family like? It was a nice Jewish family. Um, we went to, we were registered in the Jewish day school, um, but we didn't stay long because we arrived toward the end of August. A few days later, war broke out. And a few weeks later, the British government says, all school children in London will be evacuated. And so we had to leave that setting and we were evacuated to a little town called Talaton, T-A-L-A-T-O-N, which is in the Devon area of England. And um, we ended up in a very Christian society. And uh, again, the, the families in that community were involved, they, they were prepared to receive us and so on and so forth. And, uh, but they were, it was all a Christian world. And there were, six kinder transport kids among all these kids of, of London who went to Teleton, uh, the three boys and three girls. And um, so when we got to Teleton, my brother and I were assigned to uh, a Ruth Gosling and her mother and um, who volunteered to take us. Joseph was to go somewhere else. Same routine, same success. He cried. Joe, <laughs> Joe came with us. Right. Right? And uh, uh, so then we went to school in, in, in a two-room schoolhouse in, in 
Tel Aviv. And this is a Jewish family that took you in as well in Tel Aviv. Totally no, Christian. Totally Christian family. The whole world at that point was Christian. Right. We arrived with a Mr. Cohen, a Jewish teacher. He came with us in the evacuation process. And he used to run uh, Shabbat services uh, to keep the Jewish kids Jewish in some form. Right. right? Um, it's amazing what we didn't do. We, we, we were very careful about kashrut. Well, we, we didn't eat meat, didn't, the whole routine. Um, the families were okay with that? They didn't, uh... Well, for a while, <laughs> you know. Uh, and, uh, but they were amazing. They were absolutely amazing because a little side story about what, what this family did was um, my, br my brother indicated that Pesach was coming. This was for Pesach, Passover 1940. And um, this mother and daughter made contact with the Jewish world in London. And we had matzahs were sent, and I guess Haggadot was sent. Wine was not sent. Uh, <laughs> and uh, my brother ran a Seder for the six kids. Wow. Right. So... How old was your brother at the time? You were... He was 10. At age old 10. All right. Uh, but we had gone to Jewish day schools, right? You knew what to do. And he was... And we had a father and mother who uh, ran some great satyrs. So we, we knew what, to, he knew what to do. I just <laughs> followed suit. Uh, and um, so we, we ended up there. Um, but my mother was still left, when we left, she was still in Poland. So the question was, now what happens to her? Right. Well, she's- And where's a, your father now? My father's in Holland, remember? He, right. he, we dropped he, them he, off. Right. We dropped them off in Holland. Well, we'll come back to them. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> I don't need these. And, <laughs> uh, <laughs> and uh, so my mother recognized now that she's got her kids on the way and her husband in Holland, she knew he was in Holland. So she found a way. I don't know the particulars of how she did it, but she got out of Poland. German government permitted her to return to Germany. She went to see her parents and she stayed with her parents and then wrote her uncle, her mother's brother in America, um, that she needed a visa and no answer. And so she wrote again and there was no answer. And um, we found out recently that, um, at least I found out recently, it looks like some, some some other people in my family knew about it, which I did not know for some reason, that um, the, uh, I thought it was the wife who would tore up the letters. So because they were worried about the financial responsibilities that you, would, that you take. But uh, it may have been the son-in-law um, who lived in the same house. Right? Um, there are people like that in this world, as you know. Um, so, uh, these are first cousins. This was uh, the first cousins. First cousins through marriage. It was the through marriage, right. um, They're different kinds of first cousins through marriage. <laughs> uh, <laughs> so uh, um, my uncle sent, uh, my mother's uncle sent a visa, and then she worked her way to Genoa, Italy. And um, she was going to visit my father in Holland, 
And he recommended she not do that, go directly to the United States. And she was on, she went on a United States ship uh, and, and celebrated Pesach on that ship in, oh, no. in April of 1940. That's when she went in. Where, where was that ship from? Where, uh, where, where did she leave in Europe from? She left from Genoa, Italy. Italy, okay. And ended up in New York. Um, and uh, when she came to New York, she was definitely non-English speaking. Um, but she, uh, she was involved with some relatives, but primarily with, uh, I think it was Hayas at the time. And um, Hayas's Hebrew Immigrant Aid Society, an amazing organization that helped a lot of yeah, yeah. Jews and a lot of people. Um, and um, so she she got a job working as a housekeeper full time in Great Neck, Long Island. How many from Great Neck? And I always say, and I always say, I now live in Great Neck. I, I wish I could tell my mother that I live in Great Neck. Right. Um, Anyway, so my mother had a full, full time job there, and that's what she did. Um, and uh, when we arrived, because she did that. And, and she knew you guys were okay. You, you were she doing... knew where we were in England. Um, yeah, and amazing. She wrote letters and addressed them in, in a way that nobody would know what really, what, they, what was she talking about when she wrote that letter. So she, we were with a, this family, this, this mother and daughter in Teleton. Um, they lived in what was called Rose Cottage. My mother addressed it, Miss Cottage. <laughs> England, right. Miss Cottage, England, came to Rose Cottage. The mailman knew immediately <laughs> that something Rose goes back with the kids who came from Europe. Um, so, so there was communication, definite communication, and uh, so my mother knew where we were, of course, and uh, so on and so forth. And then, um, so my mother was there, and then my brother and I, um, we got a visit from my brother, my mother's younger brother, who was in the British Army, because. He left Germany after his brother was killed. He was worried, and the family was worried that something could happen to him as well, uh, even though he was not involved in the same organization as my right. uncle was. And um, so he came to England, and to get out of what they call a Kitchener camp, which is what they did with immigrants, immigrants who came from the continent, um, he could join the army. And so that's what he did. And somebody known as Zali Laufa became John Lawson because the British army was, the British were concerned that if he's caught right, by the Nazis, by the, Nazi, by the Germans, that would be a real problem. And so to the day he died, he was John Lawson in, in England. Um, and so when my uncle left us in England, he came to see us in England, in, in Devonshire. Um, and then, I don't know how directly involved he was, but visas came then for my brother and me uh, to come to the United States because my mother was in the United States. She wanted her children. Um, it was not from an ocean travel 
concept, the greatest idea in the world to go into a ship on a ship and travel to the United States because the German U-boats were out. And, um, but we did leave on September 1st from London. Uh, we left the family in, in Devonshire. We left Joseph, which was a major concern of my brother and uh, not so much me, but, but definitely my brother. Um, and, um, but Joseph remained and my brother and I left. And so we took a ship on September 1st and we arrived in the United September 10th. The ship in back of us was, was sunk. The ship in front of us was sunk. We were not. Um, it's called the luck along the way, right? Um, and uh, this was all U-boat activity. And uh, so we arrived in the United States September 10. And my mother met us September 10, 1940. And my mother met us at the, uh, at the pier. And then... Um, what was that like? Well, that was amazing. That was amazing because we had now been separated from June of 1939 to September of 1940. And a lot had gone on in between. Um, but to give you an idea about the thinking of a kid my age, the first thing I asked my mother was, did you bring my trains? <laughs> I used to have a set of trains that ran around the house. Right? Did you bring my train? Did, did you? Mean, that was certainly the most important <laughs> thing in her life, right? I'm sure. Right. So forget that. Um, and so, um, so now my mother had her children in the United States, except my mother was working full time, seven days a week, uh, one day off. So we lived with families that were really foster families, my brother and I. Uh, and my mother continued to work in this household in Great Bank. And then she uh, really got to know a little bit of English in her lifetime. And uh, so she started to study uh, a program for baby nursing. And uh, that was, you visit a house for two weeks, you take care of the baby, sure. help them. Baby and so she became that. and. Uh, she rented a room near where we lived in, in Brooklyn. And um, so now there was some connection on a regular basis with, with Mama. Um, back to my dad, who's not with us. Hitler goes into the lowlands. Yeah. And uh, Camp Vesterbrook becomes a concentration camp. And... Um, it's a shipping camp. It's not an extermination camp. And so uh, people such as Anne Frank went through Westerbrook. I mean, all the, as far as we know, is all the Jews of Holland went through Camp Westerbrook before they were shipped to Auschwitz or whatever. Um, and so um, my father was there because he, was, he came out of the, uh, the St. Louis. That's, that's part of that crowd. Um, and so people like Anne Frank shipped out of the, for some reason, which I really don't know, nor does my brother know. My father was never shipped out. Um, from this camp? From this camp. Um, he had a 
a language talent. He, I mean, he was, my father was a very bright guy. Um, and I can't tell you why they wanted him there. But um, he was never shipped out. There were other people never shipped out. Did he have a certain job there that he was well, necessary for? Well, I don't know that. Um, there's certain things I did not ask. Um, and my brother didn't ask. Um, so, and because you, you know when not to ask and when to ask after a while. Um, and so, um, my father survived that. Um, the Canadian Army came into that um, arena uh, April of 45. Canadian Army freed the camp. And um, as a side story, which would interest you guys, is that uh, the chaplain, the Jewish chaplain who came with that Canadian Army, is related to the Corman's Shalon and uh, Shana. He was uh, an uncle of Shalon's. <laughs> so he got to know my dad and um, they, com they commiserated. Uh, he, my, my father and the, the, there's correspondence that was very formal between the two. But uh, when uh, Siobhan, Siobhan and my and Joshua were married. That was stated at the event, and it was one of those unbelievable experiences oh, of love. That. So that's and they, and they met when the Canadians were liberating the camp. Yeah, sure, sure. So, um, so then and then then the question was, when does my father come to the United States? And um, what happened then was my so they were freed April of forty five. Um, my father was able to make the, we had to make an arrangement for a phone call for the first to speak to him. So that became June of forty five, because in those years international phones was not what it is today, and uh, so we spoke with my dad on five to ten minutes, whatever it was, um, and then. Um, he came to the United States a year later, a little over a year later, in July of 1946. Um, and he accompanied some hidden children and some other people. Um, and they landed they, in Mobile, Alabama, and then they took a train to New York. And we met them at the Penn Station uh, in, wow. in July of 1946. So that, that's when we became a family again. Um, and so, do you go to Penn Station every once in a while? I go to Penn Station all the time. <laughs> is it like, is it like special, or is it just Penn Station at this at this point of my life? Right. Okay. It's only special in terms of why is this train late? <laughs> <laughs> but that must have been un how unbelievable. How many years? I'm saying you didn't well, see your dad. Well, my we left. My, my father left us in April of 1939. We said hello in July of 1946. Wow. It's a bit of a time. Yeah. And uh, when you think about a family that's separated for that long, and what are the, all the pieces of, of putting that back together again? Um, not easy, not easy. 
I mean, my father found from two little kids, two big kids. Uh, my brother was 18, close to 18. I was 14, 15. Um, my father missed both bar mitzvahs of his sons. Um, Did you have bar mitzvahs? I absolutely had bar mitzvahs. Yeah, the local synagogue provided instruction for us and so on and so forth. And my brother had the tougher game. He, he had to read this, the Sedra completely. Was, and uh, I just had to do uh, Maftia and the Haftarah. He got off easy. I got off easy. Um, yeah, but did so, you feel like you were somehow, I mean, I'm just curious, just your thoughts about, you mentioned that the boat in back of you was bombed, the boat in front of you was bombed. We didn't know that until we arrived in the States. Right, okay, right. And, and the kinder transport, you got on that, you found a family, there's a blitzkrieg in London, you got to go to another family, a Christian family, and then you get out, you come to the United States, your mother's alive, thank God, and now you're reunited with your father. I don't even know what I'm asking. So <laughs> I'll tell you what you're asking. Please. Manny Coleman, were you all screwed up? No. Oh, well, no, I wasn't. Going so let that. me tell you, I was. I, you wouldn't have known it just by speaking to me as a kid in the street. But just before my father arrived, I was still biting my nails, sucking my thumb, stuttering. Can you imagine how difficult it is for a guy who likes to talk, to stutter? And uh, wetting my bed. I was 14, 15 years of age. Right. And within some weeks after my father arrived, and we were family structure, all that began to disappear. Wow. And so today I'm not doing those things. <laughs> I was actually getting a little more of like, you know, sort of the, the God element. How, how, how much do you feel... Hashem, God, was part of this. Is it just luck? Is it just like... And you, you could share whatever, you, you know. Oh, I'm, 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 I'm very straight ahead, as you can tell. Um, I don't believe that we can say it was Hashem. Um, I do believe that a lot of luck was here. I mean, there was work done by my parents in terms of getting the kids into kinder transport or or making arrangements for this way i mean going on the st louis was certainly not the results of going on the st louis was not a very successful hashem activity right right uh so but he ended up in holland so had he ended up back in germany what would have happened right we don't know that we we do know that he, he didn't go back to Germany, thank God. Um, so for me, it's tremendous amount of luck. But also intelligent moves by my parents. For example, putting your children on a kinder transport was a brilliant move by my mother. There weren't attempts by so many other Jews to do the same? Um, I'm not sure about that, but let us say they were. But... My mother found out about it. She she pursued it, and she made sure in some way that she could get her kids on that. And she accomplished that. Now, that's not luck. That's perseverance. Sure. Um, but uh, other than that, 
that we weren't uh, torpedoed in the middle of the Atlantic, that to me is luck. We, the ship was not there when the U-boat was there. That, you know. um, but uh, I'm, I want you to know I'm a shoe goer, so no, it's no. not something I don't do. <laughs> well, you don't pray to the god of luck. <laughs> well, you, you had some other questions. I had, yeah, I don't remember what they are anymore. Um, I will ask you just this. Um, you, you've been a middle school principal in Queens. Junior uh, high. I was a real uh, junior high. Forest Hills, Queens, by the way. You were Forest Hills? Yeah, my mom went to Forest Hills High. Went to, and to Halsey Junior High? Yeah, I didn't. I went to Yeshiva's. Oh, you yeah. went to Yeshiva. Okay. Yeah, you went but, to Forest Hills? Yeah. And um, many of your students may have. When Groveman was the principal, most of I heard. <laughs> um, I, I, how, do you speak about this a lot to your students over the years? When I was on active duty, I never spoke about my experience. I was very professional. That doesn't mean talking about it is unprofessional, but I just did not think that my role as a principal or as a teacher uh, was to uh, talk about my personal life and give a historical perspective and uh, make a big deal of things that uh, a school didn't deserve to have to live with. Um, now I do a lot of talking. That's beautiful. Well, we thank you for being here. One last question. Um, Anti-Semitism seems to be on the rise. Any thoughts? Um, you think we're handling it well? We're not handling it well? We have some dignitaries from Israel here, too. I'm aware of that. Know. I'm aware of that. Um, Anti-anything in terms of human to human, indicates that something is, things are not being handled well. And I'm not implying here that it's the role of the President of the United States or the Prime Minister of England to, to solve this problem all by themselves. But this is a humanity problem because we have anti-Semitism, but we have a tremendous number of other antis, which run through societies all over the world. I don't know how to solve that, but I'm not asked to begin with, so that's one thing. But the whole concept, after going through what my, my family went through, which was an anti-Semitic event, um, purely anti-Jewish that, that the German government was doing, um, which people call genocide, right? Um, and we're still talking about the same thing. I don't think it's ever going to go away, the antis, because the story about anti-Semitism is centuries old. My brother would give you a better historical perspective than I can give you, but it's there and it's staring us in the face. But we have to, we have to answer to that. We can't be hesitant. I don't think we can be hesitant in saying, being silent. Silence doesn't help us at all. And um, the problems of, of many colleges is, 
our kids may be too silent. I'm, I'm not there, so I don't know. But uh, I worry about that. And what would you say to a lot of amazing young Jewish people who just are not finding, I don't know, their own place in Judaism? And we're kind of losing them. You know, you went through so much to survive as a Jew. Um, what, would you, what would you say to such a, you know, a young Jewish person who um, That's why I'm not in the rabbinate. <laughs> <laughs> I'm looking for advice here, you know. Um, it's not simple. Um, I, and I, I always I mean, wonder. you love, you're I, a shul goer. You, yeah, you, and you I, I can tell you. You sweet smirk when you talk about your Jewish. Yeah, if, I, if, I'm, if I'm not in shul for two or three weeks in a row, there's something missing right. in my life, so I have to go back to shul. Um, part of that, a good part of that is what happened in my household after my father came and we became a family again and right. Friday nights, Friday nights I couldn't go out and play with the kids anymore, right? Uh, and uh, because we were living with in foster homes, so yeah. they let me go. Daddy came in, so. And we had to study a portion of the week every result, right? So my father was a Tamid Chacham, so he was... You know, um, you mentioned another Karlbach. Yeah. So his... The, the Upper West Side, Rabbi Karlbach, he said in one of his books, he asked, how is it that there were Jews survivors after the war that went right back to keeping Shabbos, right back to keeping kosher, and there were Jews that didn't want to have anything left to do with it. And he said it had everything to do with the kind of life Jewishly they had before the war. Because if a kid, he said, loved Shabbos, it was time with his family, he was singing and it was joyous, and they, they missed it. They wanted to get back to it. But if Shabbos was no and it was this and it was just, you know, negative to begin with, then who wants this anymore, especially after the Nazis? So that's interesting. And so in my household, when my father came to the United States and we established the household, Pesach, other survivors who were with my father, who were not religious at all, came for Pesach. And they expected to be there for Pesach as as long as my parents could function that way. Um, so for them, who had come from non-observant households, there was a real draw. They never refused about coming to a Seder at my parents' house. Um, and so other Yom Tovim as well. And so there was something that drew them. Um, but in their own homes, it was not a Jewish a Jewish life, so it's it's the background. Yeah. Background has a lot to do with it, sure. and uh, I mean that's true today in, in all of our society. Yeah, but we can change our backgrounds going forward. Well, we can do that. We can do. That. A lot of people are, thank God. Yeah, I mean, you know, it's like asking you, well, why did you become a rabbi? Yeah, right. <laughs> we won't go into that. Um, <laughs> I want to thank you so much for answering all these questions. You're incredible. Okay. Thank you. Thank you so much. Pleasure to be here. It's such an honor for us. If there's anything else you would like to. So I just want you to know that this is a fascinating audience. Um, I spent today talking about Shoah, that experience. At 11 o'clock this morning, I spoke to 
a group of fourth graders on Zoom in Miami Beach. And of course, the, the way you present to fourth graders who are 10 years old is, is different from what we did here today. Um, I then did a, a, a presentation at St. John's University. And members, priests, were present at this event and asked some wonderful questions and were very involved in getting to know more about uh, situations like mine where others um, were much more severe than mine. Um, so that was my, my second one. Um, my third one uh, was just before I came here was to at, at Torah, Turo College in Brooklyn. So I've been traveling a little bit. Um, and it was the leadership of uh, my union, which is the Council of School Supervisors and Administrators in the city of New York. I mean, I'm retired, I'm just a retiree in that crowd, but I was very active in that organization. The Jewish population in the ed education world has dropped substantially, in New York City has dropped substantially. Uh, but there were, there's a group of young Jewish people who are supervising the city of New York who decided it's time to have another organization with a Jewish moniker. And so they started the group just recently, uh, Association of Jewish Administrators in the New York City school system. And uh, so they are up to 70 some odd members. And since it was held at Turo College, they brought in classes from Turo College for this event. So the numbers were not quite as large as this, but quite large. So St. John's was large, Turo was large, and this is large. So um, people are interested and uh, they want to know more about it. and. Uh, um, people such as I have a responsibility of uh, making that happen. I'm sorry you missed my brother. He's a fascinating speaker and speaks from a different perspective than I do. And, um, but he's the intellect of the family, so. Thank you for being with us. Really. The Israeli parliament, Knesset, Ophir Sofer, who served as serves as Israel's Ministry of Aliyah and of Absorption. Again, I want to welcome all the uh, good people of Nefesh Benefesh that are here. Before entering politics, Minister Sofer was an officer in the Haruv Regiment of the IDF, received the Major's Citation for Bravery and Action during battle. It is an incredible honor and I think so appropriate to conclude our program tonight with a word from a great leader in Israel who agreed to share a couple of words. Close our program, Mr. Minister.
Thank you very much for being gathered here today. It's an honor to join you on this very solemn occasion. And I'm deeply moved to be here on the day that we in Israel and the Jewish communities around the world remember the tragedy of the Holocaust. We remember the six million men, women, and children slaughtered by the Nazis and their collaborators. We also mark 80 years to the Warsaw Ghetto Uprising. King David in Tehillim says that the days of our life are 70 years. And if we have courage and strength, 80 years. And this number, 80, reminds me of the survivors. Their story, their suffering, and their courage. It reminds me of our duty to remember their testimony and pass on their message. 25 years ago, as a young commander, commander in the Israeli army, I met Nissan Degani, who was involved in Dagana's efforts to help Holocaust survivors reach Israel after the war. He gave me a copy, a copy of his book, Exodus Calling, and wrote, Look at the things that ordinary people can do. If they can do them, so can you. His words and the stories of the survivors, the story of the Holocaust survivors who have built their lives in Israel, in the United States, and around the world, stayed with me as a combat officer in difficult moments. They stay with me today as the Minister of Aliyah and Integration of the State of Israel. It is the weight of their legacy and courage which gives us the desire to build and defend the Jewish state. Today, eight decades after the Holocaust, we see a dramatic rise in anti-Semitism. I see it today, I saw it today, on campus, on the streets, and in the public arena. We see growing Holocaust denial. We see terror attacks and hate crimes against Jews in Israel and across the globe. And we see a radical Iranian regime that calls for the destruction of the Jewish state while seeking nuclear weapons. We must speak out. We must educate and take action against anti-Semitism everywhere, in all its forms. This is our duty, both to the survivors 
and to our children. Thank you for all that you are doing to preserve the memories of the victims and the testimony of the survivors. Thank you for inspiring the next generation with their stories and courage. May the memories of all those who died in the Shoah be a blessing. Thank you very much. Um, I'm going to ask everyone to please rise. I think the best way to conclude is to uh, sing Hatikva, which was a song um, that was already sung at the end uh, in the camps. And it means hope. And um, I don't have a great voice, please sing along. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you all for being here. Uh, please enjoy some refreshments in the other room across the hall.